Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, who were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, or lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, we need his help. So let us pray that he would grant us his spirit. Father, we thank you for your word, that it has been handed down to us throughout the generations, that you have appointed prophets like Jonah to record all that you have done throughout the redemption of the world, as you have brought many people to know the saving power that you have granted through your covenant. Father, we need your spirit to help us to hear today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are soft that we might be changed through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're starting a new sermon series today through the book of Jonah. Jonah is a short book. I would uh, recommend that in this week you would read through it, um, perhaps even do that each week as we prepare for our sermon series. And it's one of those books that's super familiar to many of us, at least the, the overarching story. In fact, we maybe have seen cartoon versions of it, um, you know, coloring sheets, all of the things. But sometimes that's to our disadvantage because we lose some of the details of these stories when we have characterizations of them. 
And so we want to take some time to go through this book and to look at some of the message that God has for his people, the things that he is highlighting, the things that are unique about this story of Jonah that aren't just about a man and a fish, but are about God and his prophets and his people and his compassion. Now, Jonah is only shown up in one other place in Scripture. He was a prophet about the 8th century B.C. uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II, which if you don't know much about the kings of, uh, of Israel, most of them are bad. And so Jeroboam II was a bad king. Lots of things were going on that were bad at the time. And we're told in 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam II would be able to expand the borders of Israel back to where the Lord had originally placed them, even though there was wickedness in the land. At this time, there was a division in the people of God. Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah was in the southern kingdom. But Jeroboam was the kingdom, uh, king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And so Jonah prophesied at this time. Now, the contemporaries at the time of Jonah uh, would have been right after Elisha had kind of ended. So Elijah and then his predecessor or successor, uh, Elisha, Elisha. Uh, and then about the same time that Jonah was prophesying, you had prophets like Amos, Isaiah, and Zechariah. So if you've read those books, if you know a little bit about Old Testament history, that's kind of the era in which this is taking place. But Jonah is called to this different task. Generally, prophets came to speak to the kings of Israel, to the people of Israel, or Judah, if it was your calling. And here, Jonah had that calling. He came and he spoke to the king, and the king saw the fulfillment of this prophecy that the boundaries of Israel would be expanded. But then Jonah is called to go and to do something differently. He is called to go to a Gentile nation. In fact, Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were, in many ways, the central enemy of the people of God. We'll see later on that eventually the Assyrians are the ones who capture this nation, the northern kingdom, Israel. Samaria is where Jeroboam is reigning from. And if you know, in the New Testament, Samaria is this mixed blood of the Jewish people and Gentile nations. It is because the Assyrians come in and take over Samaria. But what Jonah has here for us is such a different story from most of the prophets. Not only because he's going to a pagan nation, but because of how this whole book is laid out. It begins the way you would expect a book of the prophet. The word of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so. But then the rest of this book is not about the word of the Lord. It is about the prophet himself. See, oftentimes you read to the prophets, and it's the oracles of God going to the people and seeing how these oracles change the nation or how they refuse to listen and how the Lord judges the nation as a result. And so the book of Jonah, in many ways, is an ironic book. It is this story about a prophet, not so much about what he says, but about what he fails to do and how God works despite him. And so the narrative here, right, it's this story, but it's one of irony, almost sarcastic. As we look at the events that take place, it starts with the idea that he's going to go to this pagan nation. 
It's kind of upside down. It's not typically what a prophet of Israel would be doing. And so as we look at our passage today and in the weeks ahead, we want to look for those ironic places, those ironies, the places in which things seem to be flipped upside down, but also the way in which those things point us to who God is and ultimately how it points us to Christ. Jonah chapter 1 highlights for us three things that I want us to look at. First, the sinfulness of mankind, the sinfulness of Jonah in particular, but we see Jonah sinning. Secondly, we see that God is sovereign over whether or not Jonah wants to obey him. God is still in control of everything that is taking place. And third, that there is salvation being secured for some. So we're looking at sin, sovereignty, and salvation. So first we get our opening verse here in verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Oftentimes in our lives we wonder, what is God's will for our lives? I wish we just had the word of the Lord come to us like it came to Jonah. It would be so much easier for us to obey, to understand. Well, Jonah had the most clear dictation of what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Syrians, and call out against it. We begin to see this irony because the Lord calls, and we see in verse 3, but Jonah... So the Lord calls to Jonah. He declares his word. When you think of the word of the Lord coming to a prophet, you would expect them to be excited. What is it that the Lord is going to reveal to me? This is this treasured office that in some tangible way, the word of the Lord shows up and reveals to the prophet what God wants to do. And so no doubt, Jonah would have been attentive He doesn't like what he hears from the Lord, so he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, supposedly from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship to go to Tarshish, and he paid the fee. He wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. You see, Jonah didn't want to go to Assyria. We'll find out later why. When Jonah saw the kingdom expanding underneath his prophetic ministry to the king, he thought there was hope for the people of Israel. And this word coming to him to go to the Assyrians, he knew, at least implicitly, that perhaps God was going to show them mercy. And if God was going to show mercy to this pagan nation, to these people over here that are our enemies, and God was going to perhaps turn them away from their wickedness, well, that would be a judgment against the people of Israel. Perhaps they would even be replaced. Jonah hated the Assyrians. He wanted nothing to do with them. He had no mercy in his mind for those people who lived in Nineveh. He did not want God's word to go to them. He did not want them to respond to what God might have to say. And so, Jonah was disobedient. Interestingly, if you think about the way in which this plays out, it seems like there's this great outcome for Jonah. He comes up with this plan, and as he goes, it seems to go very easy for him. He says, I'm going to go to Tarshish, the opposite way from Nineveh, and I'm going to go down to the port, and there, look, there's a boat, and I can just pay the fee, and I got on the boat... And I'm going to go down and take a nap. 
He thinks he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And here's where we begin to see some of the irony, some of the ironic statements in the book of Jonah, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But we're found out here in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship <clears throat> threatened to break up. Now what's so ironic about this is how Jonah describes the Lord just a few verses later in verse 9. Who is the God that you belong to? Oh, he's the one who created the sea and the dry land. I'm the one who's fleeing from the Lord's presence, but he is the one who's sovereignly in control over the sea and the dry land and all things. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Now, this imagery of the great wind coming upon the sea, I don't know if you've seen the show. It was popular in the early 2000s called The Deadliest Catch. I don't know how many episodes I actually watched, but the commercials were always riveting, right? These huge waves, you know, eight feet in the air and the boats tipping up like this. I can't imagine what that would have been like here 800 years before Jesus was ever born in this ancient time with rickety boats, handmade having this sea toss this boat to and fro. The Lord interrupting Jonah's plans. So we see Jonah is sinful and flees, but then we see that God is still sovereign and in control of what is happening. And ironically, what we're going to see here is the first interaction between Jonah and some non-believing pagan men. And it is these non-believers that truly show what Jonah should be doing. They were afraid, verse 5, and they cried out to his God. Now, it's not, wouldn't have been common necessarily for sailors to have been particularly religious, but as we know, in the face of death, every man becomes very religious. And so they did whatever, whatever they thought they could do. They cried out to their God. Maybe they believed in a God of the sea. Maybe they had some God of origin in their family household, so they cried out. They knew that they were in a life-or-death situation. They began to throw off the cargo from their boat that it might be lighter, that it might not capsize. They knew that God was perhaps putting their life at risk, and they were seeking mercy. Now, in contrast to these pagan men who don't necessarily believe in any God, but are just crying out for mercy and help, Jonah has gone down into the boat and has taken a nap. He thought he had figured out a way to escape, that he could just take a nap. He thought that his sin was personal and secret that it wouldn't have any effect on anybody else. And as long as he stayed away from Nineveh, God's will would not be able to be done. The word wouldn't go to them, and the Ninevites would continue on under God's judgment. The sailors knew better, and the captain comes, and he says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Get up. Call out to your God. Don't you see we are all praying? Think of this. The captain of this boat is calling a prayer meeting in the midst of a boat that is nearly flipping over and breaking apart. He's not the prophet from Israel. He's just a pagan sailor. 
Pray out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us and we will not perish. At this point, Jonah could have told them what was going on. Indeed, I'm sure he is becoming convinced that he did not escape the presence of the Lord. But he holds his tongue, and the sailors, they begin to press him. They begin to come up with a plan. They want to figure out how this has come about and how they can fix it. Verse 7, they call out to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Let's draw names out of a hat. Who, you know, God of the sea, who is it that you're mad at? And in God's providence, they pull out Jonah's name. And they don't even accuse him of doing anything wrong. They say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What do you do? Where are you from? And here, Jonah begins to confess. Perhaps what's going on? I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah says here that he fears the Lord. But indeed, he is so gripped by his own conviction, his own sense of what God ought to do, that he here is willfully disobeying. But it is indeed the sailors that are the ones who fear the Lord. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence because he had told them. Up until now, up until they put Jonah in a corner and forced him to tell everything that had happened. Where are you from? What do you do? Why is this happening to us? Jonah was willing to let his sin cause other people to suffer. And yet God is still in control. God is still sovereign. And salvation is about to come. Verse 11. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. Jonah says to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Just kill me. It's another easy way out for Jonah to not fulfill what God had called him to do. Well, if he can't escape God's presence, then just throw me into the sea. I deserve to die for what I have done. In fact, I would rather die than to go to Nineveh and proclaim the word of the Lord to them. But see, the sailors don't even take his advice. They have a much higher view of even preserving his life than Jonah does. And they, they try to row their way back to the, to the dry land. But the Lord makes it harder and harder for them to continue on. And here's where we see things take a dramatic shift. Verse 14, Then they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have, made us, made, have done as it pleased you. Now, there are things that fall away in our English translations of the Bible. And one of those things that they try to continue to highlight for us are the names of God. And when we see particular names of God, it highlights 
something significant. Now, there's generic names that uh, refer to the God of Israel, just like any other God. It's kind of a generic, like maybe we would say. And then you have, there's this one specific name that when you see it, I have to perk your ears. It's often these all uppercase letters, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Now, that's significant because the people of God often use the name of the Lord, Yahweh. But when you see a pagan in the Old Testament in particular use the word Yahweh, there's been a conversion that's taken place. We see that's happened in the book of Ruth. When she goes back with Naomi, she confesses the covenant name of God. And so here the sailors do the same. They have gone from calling out to their gods, seeking to know what's going on, casting lots in their divinations. And they realize that the God that Jonah is disobeying is the true God, the one who is sovereign over the sea and the dry land and over all of creation. And they try their best to get back to the shore and they realize they must call out to the one true God. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And then they decide that they're going to do what he said and cast him overboard. And they say, Lord, don't let us be guilty for his blood. You have caused this to come about. You are judging him. We are trying to be faithful. We've called this prayer meeting. Lord, help us. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And they made vows. Technically, that is the end of chapter 1. You might see a footnote on verse 17 in your Bible that says, In the Hebrew, chapter 2 begins on verse 17. It's a transitional statement for us. But it ends in this dramatic way because what we have here is a narrative where sinful Jonah disobeys the word of the Lord. The prophet of God goes and tries to flee from his presence. And in his folly, it is the unbelieving sailors who respond in faith. Who when they see how mighty and powerful God is, they seek his mercy. They see his sovereign hand. And it results in them worshiping, making a sacrifice, taking vows. Jonah is the unfaithful, sinful man. God is sovereign even in Jonah's sinful rebellion using this scene. It's not out of God's control. In fact, it was for the purpose of saving these sailors. Through Jonah's folly, these men come to trust in the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. They worship him by offering sacrifices and making vows. And Jonah, as he goes to flee, he is no longer able to run and is thrown into the sea that he might die. But God won't even let him do that because God's will will not be thwarted. 
And so we see once again as we close our passage in verse 17 that even there in Jonah's death, God is sovereign and he appoints a great fish to swallow him up. And as we know, will eventually bring him to his destination. It's a story we are all fairly familiar with. But it highlights for us how God is at work in even the rebellion of his people. And it ought to be a reminder to us to look at the things in our lives where we don't agree with where God is calling us to be. Jonah didn't have any question in his mind about what God's will was for his life. He just didn't want to follow it. Many of us would prefer to have some sort of, you know, lightning bolt experience where God writes on the wall the thing we're supposed to do today every morning. But I don't think that would necessarily help us any more than what has already been revealed to us in his word. It's easy for us to claim ignorance, to ignore the obvious things that God has called us to, to be faithful, even the basic things, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Hasn't there something else we could do? Can I go on a mission trip somewhere? Where are the ways in which we know God's will already for us? And yet we are willfully hanging on to our own agenda. We are fleeing to go do something else. And it seems to go easy for us. Right? The door is open. The ship is waiting. We got on. We got to take a nap. Things are going well. Where do we think that we can outrun God's will? How often do we live our lives as if God's not actually involved? Think about this. Jonah, a prophet who knew the intimate details of the mind of God, thought he could flee from God's presence. That is a fairly skewed view of who God is. How often do we live as deists, those who just think of God? He's just out there somewhere else. He's not really watching. He's not really involved. He doesn't really care. There's certainly no way in which he's going to act. Just go about my business. I'll go to God's presence on Sunday. Cling to my understanding of where I ought to go. Ignoring, perhaps, God's word over my life. But perhaps most important in our passage here today is how we respond when God does intervene. I I doubt we'll find ourselves on a ship in a scenario like Jonah. I doubt we've had that very specific convicting word to us that we ran away from. Perhaps we have. Perhaps we know today the thing that is causing us to run from the presence of God. That he will not let us forget. That he will not let us escape. Jonah will not escape God's will to preach to the Ninevites. God will not let us continue on in our sin. If God leaves us in our sin, that is far worse than to find ourselves in a rocky boat on the sea. And so when God does confront us, when God does remind us, when our consciences are pierced, when we are convicted of our sin, how will we respond? We don't look to Jonah because he's not the Savior in the story. 
Jonah would rather die than submit to God's will. He would rather cling to his own agenda as he sinks to the bottom of the sea. He would rather hold on to his pride. But we see the response of the sailors. They want to understand. They seek to understand why this is happening. Why has this come upon me? Why is there calamity? How can we obey God? What would we do that this would stop? They ask Jonah, the man who's disobeying. Look, Jonah, you're a prophet. Tell us, what ought we to do? They are confronted by God's sovereign intervention in their lives, and they seek him to understand how to make things right. They cry out for mercy. Lord, help us. Don't let us die because of this man's sin. And if we throw him overboard, Lord, you are in control of this. Don't count it against us. We are just trying to survive. Lord, we are dependent on you and your mercy. And when the Lord delivers them, what do they do? They worship him. We are all like Jonah. We are all fleeing from God's presence for one reason or another. And God is continually working those things out in our lives. Indeed, as Paul reminds us in Romans, God works all things together for the good of those whom he calls. For our salvation. All things. Even shipwrecks. Even uncomfortable conversations. Tragedies in our lives. God is using those things to draw us back to him, that we would cry out like these sailors do, confessing, Yahweh, have mercy. Lord, don't let this happen to us. Help us in our weakness. It overflows in worship. What's interesting about this passage is it gets one thing right. Jonah understands one thing right about his circumstance. A man had to die for his sins. Jonah knew fleeing from the Lord was a serious problem. Disobeying the word of the Lord as a prophet... Well, we know what prophets who are unfaithful end up having done to them. In the Old Testament, right? They're supposed to be stoned to death. Jonah would rather die in his sin. Indeed, our Lord uses this book, Jonah, as a reminder of the sign he was going to give to the people of Israel. Not only that he, like Jonah would be in the belly of the whale for three days, right? That's the words he uses. But that throughout all of the Old Testament, and in the prophets in particular, we see these little glimpses that point us to something greater, something that is fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. And that is that the salvation of these men came at the price of throwing a man overboard. Jonah had to die. Jonah had to essentially be put to death. Now, of course, we know that the Lord was merciful and appointed the fish to save him and to continue on in his journey. But it's the same for us. It's the same confession that they make. 
And as we come to the Lord's table today, it is the thing we must be reminded of, that in our sin and our rebellion, in our fleeing from God's presence, in our inability to let go of our own agendas, in order for us to be forgiven, a man has to die. Jonah wanted it to be himself. Perhaps sometimes we feel that way. Lord, just take me away. But God is so much greater than our circumstances, so much more in control. He doesn't just appoint a prophet like Jonah to get thrown off a boat that the sailors might be saved. Indeed, he sent his own son that when we cry out in mercy, we can be forgiven because he died for us. The prophet Jonah points us to Christ who hears us, who intercedes for us, who dies in our place, even though we, like Jonah, flee God's presence, unwilling to repent at times, has taken upon himself the judgment and punishment that we deserve. So that when we cry out with this prayer like the sailors, O Lord, let us not perish. We can be found in Christ Not only because he died, but because he came out of death. And we have hope in his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the sin in our lives, the ways in which we flee or try to flee God's presence, may we respond like these sailors. May we turn to God and seek his mercy. May we look to the one who died that we might not have to die ourselves. That we can have forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has died for sinners like us, sinners like these men on this boat. Lord, we need your forgiveness. We need Christ's death on our behalf. We need your continual reminder of the ways in which we stray from your ways. Lord, help us in our weakness. Lord, help us to turn from our stubbornness Lord, help us to cry out for mercy, knowing that it has been paid for. Lord, help us to be dependent on Christ for our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.